Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant family. Happy Sunday to you. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want you to turn back to the text that Pastor Dave read for us at the outset of our time together, the prophecy of Nahum. We've been in a series for the last several weeks, actually, a little off and on for Easter and Mother's Day, but generally speaking, kind of keeping our trajectory, moving through this, this section of what we call our Old Testament called the Minor Prophets, which is really just a collection of 12 prophecies uttered by 12 different men to 12 different groups of people with 12 different contexts, but all really with the same theme, and that theme is to repent, which means to turn. And every time there's a call to repent, there's a call to turn from something to something else. So it's not merely backing away from this thing that's bad for me, it's turning and starting to walk in the direction of this thing that's good for me. And today, we look at this invitation. The invitation of God through his prophet Nahum to the people of Nineveh even. It's a bit of a cautionary tale, but nonetheless, it comes through to us in this way. Turn from peril to refuge. Now, let's let's apply some definitions here right at the outset. First, peril is, just according to your average dictionary, serious and immediate danger or a threat to expose one to danger. So if someone is in peril, doesn't necessarily mean the trigger's been pulled yet, but it might mean you have a gun pointed at your head. It doesn't mean that you even see the enemy, but it does mean the enemy is on his way, is on her way. Peril is that you're exposed to the possibility. And so if something is in peril, but then by definition, that thing is not safe. All right, we established with that. God says, if you do not repent, you are not safe. That's the message. Then when we find ourselves in peril, he says, I'm inviting you to seek refuge. Now, in one sense, this is something we kind of naturally do if we realize that we're in danger. Because refuge, by contrast, is a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. So if you're outside and then you're suddenly caught in one of these rainstorms that we get, you know, you look at your weather app and everything's sunny and clear and you think it's going to be great, and then about the time you get to the third tee, the sky turns almost completely black and the bottom falls out, because even with all of our technology in 2023, weathermen still don't know nothing. Amen? All right, and you get out there and the thing just starts coming down on you and then you start walking, but you're not just walking the same way you would walk if it's 72 and sunny, are you? You, You're at a little bit of a brisk pace, but but if you're a dude, you're probably still not running, right? Because, I mean, you don't want to be afraid of a little bit of rain, right? So you're just kind of, you're picking up the pace a little bit. You notice your clothes are getting wet, but you're kind of laughing about it. And that's about the time that lightning strikes the cart path. And then you run with your head down, covered up, right? There's a certain level of peril that you find you get yourself into, but you run. Anytime that we sense we're in danger, whether it's emotionally, physically, we seek refuge. Nobody wants to be surrounded by peril. But here's the trick. What if you don't know that you're in danger? That's, That's really the point of Nahum. This past week, you guys sent me to Texas There are going to be churches planted in the very near future in the Fort Lauderdale area in Florida and in Austin, Texas. 
uh, at least partially because of our investment through GlocalNet in new church planters. And I was just delighted and honored to be able to provide some instruction this week at a ranch just outside of Crandall and just had a great time. But the, 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 the training ended a full half day before I thought it would. So I did what I always do when my schedule's not going to take that long out of town. I started looking for an earlier flight. And since I couldn't find one that was more less than three, four hundred bucks to get back here on time, I decided I would just do, yeah, I would, I would find something to do in Dallas. And there was something I'd never done before that I'd, I had wanted to do the several times that I had been to Dallas, and so I did it. I drove up to North Dallas to the, the campus of Southern Methodist University, and I visited the George W. Bush Presidential Library, just something I've always wanted to do. And so I, I went through that, and if you've ever been to a presidential library of any sort, you know they start with their, their upbringing, and so you saw the family and all that, and then you get to how they became president, how they got into this position, and, and then you start dealing with the issues, okay? And it will surprise none of you that a full one-third of that entire exhibit was dedicated to a single day, September 11th. 2001, which started looking kind of like this. Y'all remember those towers? And here's what I started thinking as I was moving through that exhibit. On September 11, 2001, hundreds, even thousands of people reported to work in both of those towers of the World Trade Center, and before they were clocked in, some of them, there was already one Americans Airlines jet and one United Airlines jet that had already been hijacked and were both coming at them with full speed. They were in peril, and they had no idea. So until the moment of impact, they thought it was just another day. Wouldn't it have been nice to have known what was coming? Wouldn't it have been nice to make preparations? That, the target audience that we're going to examine today found themselves in a similar situation. This series has taught us that there are many ways to repent. Hosea has taught us that we need to turn from idolatry and to worship. And Amos has taught us that we need to turn from judgment to blessing. And Joel has taught us that we need to turn from injustice to compassion. And Obadiah has taught us to turn from destruction to restoration. Jonah taught us, and we'll pick back up on Jonah a little bit today because there's a connection here historically with Nahum. But Jonah taught us to turn from hatred to love. And Micah, a couple of weeks ago, taught us to turn from wrath to forgiveness. Nahum's message is turn from peril to refuge. Let me give you some context for what this looks like. A few weeks back, as I said, we looked at Jonah. Today, when we open to Nahum, what we're effectively reading is the sequel to Jonah's story. 130 years after Jonah finally turns himself from his hatred of these people toward the love that God would have for them. He goes into the city. He proclaims a message that he thinks is doom and gloom. Actually, he doesn't even realize what he's saying. Uh, the people in Assyria turn. They sit in sackcloth and ashes. They tear at their garments. They do all of the things that are indicative of genuine repentance. And God relents. God relents. And so that's because of Jonah going in obedience to Nineveh. The capital city of Assyria, the nation who is the target of Nahum's prophecy here. Nahum declares God's people will be freed from Assyrian bondage now. So all these years later, the Assyrians got their chance to repent. And now the Assyrian conquerors are about to pay a heavy price for violence, for wickedness, for, for plundering in the, in the promised land. And here, here's kind of the interesting twofold twist of this entire prophecy. 
It tells us two things. First off, that God is sovereign over all of history, and that includes times when it appears to us he's allowing the wicked to prevail. It may seem like he's malevolent. It may seem like he doesn't care. It may seem like he's out of control of the world, but it just seems that way. We see that on the, from the inside, really, here with, with Nahum. And the second thing we see is this. God doesn't have favorites. God doesn't care what color you are. God doesn't care what language you speak. God doesn't care how much money's in your wallet. It's all his anyway. That's another subject for another day. God doesn't care about those things. And because of that, his justice is always consistent. It's always perfect. And we know that not only because of what we're going to read in Nahum, but, but from what we read 100 years prior to Nahum, that Isaiah speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to God's own people. Look at these verses in Isaiah 10, verse 1. Woe to those, and again, this isn't Assyria, this isn't Babylon, this is Israel he's speaking to. Woe to those who who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. Okay, A legislative body making laws that are fundamentally unjust. Well, what's God's definition of what's unjust? He turn aside the needy from justice. They rob the poor of my people from their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Now, where's this judgment coming from? Right? Where's it? Is God just going to do this directly? Fast forward to verse 5 and look at this. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. And the staff in their hands is my fury. All right, let that sink in for just a minute. It's going to take a while to get your head and your heart wrapped around this if you weren't familiar with it before. Because it's telling us God is using an an irredeemably wicked people to judge his own people. Why? Because his own people were wicked. That's why. And because something, when something is wicked, it's just simply wicked. All right, we we live in a a day with a lot of toxicity. People at the family level can't get along. People at the national level can't get along. Congress can't get along. And and it's and it's caused by something that we it's a it's it's a term we've become familiar with. It's called toxic polarization. Not that you can't have strong opinions or that you can't disagree with somebody, but you allow that to develop a level of toxicity so that there's never any, any compromise. There's, there's never any trying to come together and do something good, even on the things that we might agree on. And one of the overwhelming evidences of the tribalistic nature of this is something that our friends at the One America Movement call motive attribution asymmetry. Okay? In other words, I'm going to attribute motives to you. Not only am I going to judge what you did, but I'm going to see if I can look inside your heart to see why you did it. And I'm just going to assume it's because you're dumb or because you're evil or because you're wicked. But, but I'm going to do that in an asymmetrical way. So if I'm a Republican and a Democrat does something wicked, I light up my social media feed. I talk about how horrible it is. I do all this stuff. The world is coming apart because of those people. But when somebody in my own party does it, Well, that's different. No, it's really not. It's wicked, no matter who does it. All right? This is what separates people. When our sense of justice begins to separate from his, this is one of the evidences of it, is it's not clear, 
It's not objective. What's happened in that moment is I'm looking, and it happens in the other party as well, as to whether, all right, before I judge the rightness or wrongness of a thing, I got to ask this question, are they part of my tribe? All right, happens in the religious world. Are, are they a Baptist or are they a Pentecostal? Or are they, who, whose tribe are they? I got to figure that out before I can determine the, the rightness or wrongness of that. And what it does is it completely obliterates all objective, objective standards. And it drives us into deeper peril and into deeper conflict with each other. It's one of the most important lessons we can learn from this little known prophet is this. When it comes to God's justice, it is transcendent. It is transcendent. It is objective. It is consistent. It is inflexible. Which means, if you look at, if you, if you understand that, and then you look at the way that gets meted out in society, in both of our testaments, it means this. You can always count on God to always take the side of the victim over the perpetrator. Nahum portrays God as the divine warrior. And he will initiate warfare on the perpetrators of violence and injustice, even if those perpetrators are his own people. So here's the question we have to ask as people who are gathered here this morning, most of us, some of you may, I mean, we always have non-Christians in our group, and I'm thankful for you today, but this, this particular 30-second segment is for those who have put their faith in Jesus, and you're sitting there this morning, you're identifying yourself as one of God's people. The question Nahum would pose to you is this, is God fighting on this day, in this morning, is he fighting for you or is he fighting against you? Which is it? God's justice is perfect, objective, transcendent, and in a fallen world, that is good news and it's also bad news because here in Nahum, we learn that repentance will bring us out from under the peril of his judgment and into the refuge of his loving presence. Now, there's something unique to Nahum, especially in our English translations. It's actually not true of most of the minor prophets, and that is that your English Bibles are divided up in precisely the way that the Hebrew original language was, which is a great gift from God. That's not always the case. Our English Bibles, those chapter and verse divisions are later editions. They're there so that, well, you can find the passage that you're looking for. That there's nothing wrong with that, but they weren't part of the original language. They weren't part of the original prophecy when it was written. This is one of those rare occasions in which we find that the chapter divisions actually coincide precisely with the three major divisions of Nahum. And, and so chapter 1 tells us this, refuge is found in the emulation of God's character. The emulation of God's character. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. All right? So vengeance is coming. Judgment is coming. It, it, it's coming not quick. It's not going to come like, like somebody's got a temper problem and they just pop off and you never know. God's not like that. He's slow to anger. Slow to anger, but he will not clear the guilty. So now that you know the peril is coming, this is your opportunity to turn and do something about it and run into his arms and, and into his refuge. And there's a contrast here. He takes vengeance or wrath on his enemies, and the root of this is something that makes us uncomfortable, is that he is jealous. God is jealous. 
Anybody else in here like me and it makes you a little bit nervous to say something like that, let alone read it in the text? Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Because when we hear the word jealousy, so often do we not, we associate it with something negative. In fact, most of the time when jealousy is mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned as, as a human attribute that's a negative thing that we got to get rid of. Because we're presuming if we're jealous and sinfully jealous, rights that we don't have. Or rights to something or to someone that we don't have. But there are healthy forms of jealousy, even in human beings. And that's what we can see that will help us understand the jealousy of God. There's, there's a healthy, now I get there's all kinds of unhealthy jealousy. There's toxic jealousy. There's ex-boyfriend jealousy. That stuff just messed up. Okay? But, but there is a kind of jealousy that is helpful, a kind of jealousy that if it's not expressed, something's probably wrong. Some of you have heard this story before. Forgive me for repeating it. But, but I, I like telling it because, well, I think it's funny. And, uh, and I like funny. And, and I also find it's just, it's just an excellent example of this. Back in 2006, I was uh, in a role where I was ministering to all kinds of churches, really started all over the mid-Atlantic region and, and, and ultimately all over the world. And we made a commitment, Amy and I did, that our kids were really young and they didn't need to be on planes and globetrotting with me. I didn't need to be dragging them everywhere. What really probably needed to happen is they needed to be in the same church every week. They need the same Sunday school teacher every week. Y'all hearing me, Covenant Kids? They, they need that influence, right? My kids got it. They need to hear from the same pastor preaching God's word every week. They just, they need that stable church environment. And so on occasion, Amy would travel with me, but most of the time she would stay home. She would take the kids to church and about three or four times a year, I would drop in just so the other guys knew she wasn't a single mom and she was mine. Okay. So that was the deal. That was, that was kind of how it worked. Um, and one day I go to the mailbox. I'd been doing this interim pastorate at a church down in the lower part of Howard County, Maryland. And I pull this letter out and it's anonymous. So I think, oh my gosh, what's this going to be? But I open it up and it was just highly encouraging to me. It, it was, it was somebody telling me how blessed they had been by my ministry and my preaching and all these kind of things. And again, you, you can blow a preacher, you can blow anybody's head up, but sometimes man, a little bit of encouragement is great. And I was so encouraged by that, if for no other reason than most of the time, just so you know, when guys in my line of work get letters that are not signed, they are not nice, okay? And so I got this, and I'm walking six inches off the ground all the way up to the driveway, back to our home in Maryland. Amy was doing something in the kitchen. I laid that card down. I said, baby, look at that. I think that might be the first anonymous letter I've got that's positive, that actually appreciates what I do and the work that I've done, and I'm just... I am on cloud nine right now, and I had not gotten to the dining room table before my bride picked up that card and read it and had enough presence of mind to say, all right, who's the hussy? What are you talking about? She's like, I don't know who this is, but they're after you. And I'm like, no, they're not. You're outside your mind. I mean, that, this is stupid. That night, we had another ministry couple come over to have dinner. It was a Saturday night. She didn't say a word. She laid the card down in front of my friend's wife, and she read the card and said, who's the hussy? And I'm like, what is with y'all? Like, we can't. Now, here's the deal. If you feel compelled by God's Spirit to write your pastor an encouraging letter, and you're female, please do. 
Okay, I'm not trying to discourage that. Amy's not trying to discourage that. We got too many churches where we got this horrible culture where a guy in my line of work feels like he's got to stay away from women because he thinks they're all temptresses. It's just stupid and ridiculous and honestly abusive to women, okay? So, so that's not what I'm talking about here. But, but maybe sign it. <laughs> maybe that's a good idea. Maybe sign it. And maybe, I don't, I don't remember what some of the words were. I, don't, I just remember getting an encouraging letter. That's all I remember. And I'm apparently a little dense and a little slow. <laughs> um, so if some of you are like, well, what do I not say? I, I don't know. Ask a woman. They'll know. Um, because there were two at my dining room table that night. And they knew the difference, right? But, but what happened? Here's what's going on. The next morning we get up. I get ready. I'm getting ready to go to this church. And, and I'm, I notice Amy's rhythms are a little different. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, we're going to church with you today. <laughs> okay, this should be interesting. She did not interrupt the worship service. She did not stir up drama. She did not cause any problems. But somehow she flushed that woman out. I don't know how she did it. <laughs> and on the way home, I'm like, you feel better? Yeah. I'm fine. Okay. She goes, I just needed to reassert what was mine. And you're mine. And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And this is kind of cool. Like, like that's, what was she, what was that crazy stuff? No, that wasn't crazy. That was, mm, there's something here. You might not have seen it. Other people not. I saw it. You belong to me. This is how this is going to go down. That's healthy. Okay? And God, Scripture tells us, is jealous in precisely that way. He is vigilant over what belongs to him, and everything belongs to him. So it is right and it is good that God is jealous because it is at the root. That's at the very root of this promise that we have. God, because he is jealous, will never break the first commandment. He will never put anybody or anything above himself because he knows doing something like that is not good even for the other thing or the other person that he puts forward. It would not. It would introduce more injustice into the world, more peril into the world. If God is not at the top, that's where chaos comes from. It happens when we put something other than God at the top. What on earth would happen if God were to violate his own command? And so the way he provides refuge from that peril, Nahum tells us, is by maintaining his jealous character. And we've talked about this before. It's not drama. It's not crazy. It's not some outburst. It's not uncontrollable. God has never lost his temper. Because to lose something is to not have control of it anymore. That's never happened to God. He has never done that. His wrath is not this popping off. Like you never know what's going to set him off. His wrath, his anger, his jealousy are all rooted in this. A settled and clear and absolutely immovable disposition toward any and all things contrary to his will because he knows that any and all things that are contrary to his will are not good for his creation and it's his creation. And he intends to guard it. God is good. These attributes 
are indicative of his goodness. That's what we, when we refer to divine jealousy, guys, this is what we're talking about. The source from which flows perfect vengeance. Now, here's the further good news. He's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. God doesn't have a temper problem. He's got a really, really long wick. And if you don't believe that, then you need to back up. I know these are pretty harsh words in, in Nahum, but back up from this text and take a look at the, the history behind it. Nineveh preached to, or Jonah preached to Nineveh around 780 B.C. This judgment is announced in 650 B.C. Do the math. That's 130 years that God has been patient with the Assyrian people. He's patient. He's good. He's kind. He is slow to anger. You know, one of the things, in fact, that caused the rapid growth of the first century church was this view of God. He's not a Roman or a Greek God or one of those deities with an unpredictable nature that you never know what's going to set him off. You always got to walk on eggshells around him. And when these people heard the early Christians speak of this consistent, moral, perfect God with equally just and clear expectations for his creation, it was attractive to them. Think about that. It was attractive to godless pagans in Greek and Rome. Why is it not attractive to us? Why is it? Let me humbly suggest that it might be because most people would rather God be affirming than forgiving, enabling than forgiving, looking past my sinful propensities. But see, the thing is, if he does that, then the focus gets shifted from him to me. Everybody now becomes the exception to the rule. It, it shifts from, from him to me. It shifts then from the consistent to the inconsistent. It, it shifts from the orderly to the chaotic. There is one perfect, consistent, clear, righteous refuge providing moral standard. And it's anchored in the heart of our creator. And it's inflexible because he's unchanging. When we repent, we return to him we can have confidence in his refuge because of his character. So the refuge he offers us in Nahum is found in the emulation of God's character. Here's characteristic number two. Refuge cannot be found outside of God's protection. So overall, chapter two is a graphic description of how God's judgment is going to be executed. Chapter two, verse one, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. What do you hear the urgency in this? Watch the road. Just for battle. Collect all your strength. Anybody remember Indigo Montoya from The Princess Bride? <laughs> you killed my father. Prepare to die. All right. That, that's what you're reading here. I am the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. You harmed my people. I'm coming. I'm coming. And then he goes on. Verse 4. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Now, little context here. Nineveh at this point in history was one of the most fortified cities in the ancient world. It bordered the Tigris River, up on a hill in a way that made it almost uninvadable. And so it is to those people that God says these words. Here's what's coming. Your armies are going to position themselves. The entire defense mechanism is going to move to DEFCON 1. But it won't matter. I'm coming. And you can't stop me. Nothing can protect you from me. The river? 
I'll just open it up. Not like I haven't done it before. Remember the Red Sea? And when you realize just how helpless you are, this is what will happen. Verse 8, halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. Whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. Nope, nope. You had 130 years, and you are now past the point of no return. This section of Nahum reminds us they're really, I think it was General Sherman back in the Civil War that, that coined the phrase, war is hell. And one of the things we see in chapter 2 is there is no greater hell than when God himself is waging the war. He is a fierce, unspeakably terrifying warrior. This is a graphic description of ruin and devastation, increasing incoherence and chaotic imagery. And here's the teaching that we find, not just here, but in so many other places in God's word. God's never punished anybody that didn't deserve it. Never. That's the hardest thing, I think, to come to grips with in an age of so much entitlement and presumptuousness. But, but we need this God. Our world more than ever needs this God. Otherwise, there is no justice, and there never will be any justice. In fact, when you think about this more deeply, there's actually something very appealing even intuitively to all of us, about a God who is retributive, a God who will, who will crush his enemies, a God who will bring an end to evil until, until, through our own sin and rebellion, we become the objects of that retribution. And then our tone is tempted to change. And the narrative of Scripture here is contrasted with so many cultural narratives we hear today. The prevailing narrative coming at us through the media, through the filters of various Critical theories, for example, tells us that, that our history is determined by a reality, and that reality is that we are filled as a culture with two and only two groups of people, oppressors and victims. What have they done? How did they get there? Well, they took a history that's actually true, a history in our culture, in this nation, in, in Great Britain, up until around the turn of the 19th century, where there was an ethnically defined group of oppressors and an ethnically defined group of oppressed. That's absolutely true. There's absolutely no way that you can whitewash that out of history. It happened. It was wicked. It was evil. We still suffer from some of the effects of it today in our relationships with our brothers and sisters of color. All of that's true. Here's the mistake. It's when you take that history and you assume that history is true because it is objectively true that this one group of people is always oppressive and this other group of people are always the victim. And when you do that, you miss something. You miss something huge that keeps you from redemption. The refuge that God provides is a refuge that rightly judges and ultimately removes the oppression that we place on each other. Yes, society is made up of perpetrators and victims. It always has been. There's never been a society that wasn't made up of those two groups of people. But the truth of Scripture tells us we are all victims and we are all perpetrators. All of us. So the refuge God provides is not only refuge from protection from his judgment, it removes that element from our relationships with each other. Did you realize that? Like when you, when you lay yourself out there vulnerable before God, the refuge he provides is a refuge for you, it's a refuge for your neighbor, and it's also a refuge from conflict between you and your neighbor. 
Right after the first of the year, we're going to do a series just, I haven't even titled it yet, but it's about the one another commands in Scripture. Because the further I go, I've been in ministry 30 years now, and I can't tell you the number of times a major initiative has been shut down or a church lost its forward momentum or went full bore in reverse, not because of bad theology, not because of heresy, but because two grown adults couldn't figure out how to get along with one another. And the, and the instructions are really not all that hard. Deference toward one another, seeking others before you seek yourself, all those things that Jesus taught us in the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna to look at some of that next year. Here's the reason. The, the overwhelming majority of our issues, whether it's in a church or whether it's in society at large, they're not theological. we got some young men training for ministry, and it's the hardest thing to convince them of. The primary problems are not theological. Listen to a theologian. It's not theology. It's relationship. It's the inability to obey the theology that we know. So how do we, how do, we do that? And, and, and it's, it's weaponizing that theology. It's always about what the other person's supposed to do. This is why we don't like God's justice, because we know eventually it's coming for us too. The peril in this world is largely relational peril. God's justice provides the only refuge from this. So it's found in the emulation of God's character. It's not found outside of God's protection. You've got to run to him and only to him if you want a solution to this. Here's number three. Refuge is anchored in God's justice. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, that's a concerning word. Why? Well, let's fast forward to verse 19 and we see this. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear this news about you clap their hands over you. For, in other words, you're suffering, you're suffering deeply, all your enemies are happy about it. I, as the God over you, take great satisfaction in it. Why is that? For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Yeah, now, hopefully I'm not outing my kids here. Um, I'm not going to call them by name, but I only got three of them, and you know their names, most of you do. And, but I'm sure this is what I'm about to describe has happened in every household in front of me. I know, I, 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 just, I just have a feeling it does. But when they were little, and, and they would disobey or do something they shouldn't do, they, and they would, get, they would get punished. We'd take something away from them that was precious to them. We would, we would take time away from them, from their friends. We would do, there, there would be, it's, just, it's that basic mom and dad 101 that your kids need to learn that there are consequences to bad behavior so that they're just sent to their room and not later sent to jail, you know, that kind of thing. And so we're trying to teach them those things. And I, I know this may be hard to believe, but occasionally they would get mad at us for punishing them. I don't think mine are the only kids, are they? Anybody else in here got kids got mad at you when you punished them? Who acted as though you'd sent them to a Russian gulag, a Turkish prison, sent them? Like taking their phone away is like putting them in the third world and taking away their water supply. It's just the most awful thing in the world. And, and they, all, they all reacted in different ways. We have a, we have a kid who just soles up and just won't say anything, just pouts. What's wrong? Nothing but just really stubborn. Uh, we got another one that it's, it's the opposite. It's emotional outbursts and everything else. I'm not going to tell you who's who. I'll let you all figure that out. 
Our youth ministry already knows. But, um, but, I, but, but see, I'm not outing anybody because all of you have got kids. They do that way. They act a certain way, and they're just being... They're just being absolutely unreasonable. And it's usually when, with a, with a smile, kind of like this, I just look at them and I say, whose fault is this? And through hardened eyes and angry tears, they look back at their father and go, mine. <laughs> you know what that is? That's confessing it. That ain't owning it. Yeah, I know I did. What's what of it? Give me my phone back. Give me my time back with my friend. Give me this. Give me that. Uh, yeah, you you can confess something without really owning it. This is uh, this has been a common theme, has it not, through this whole series that repentance is not confession. They are two different things. People confuse the two, and then they think saying I'm sorry, even in an angry way. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that. <laughs> Listen to yourself. That's not repentance. Repentance doesn't just mean you confess it. You've got to own it. I had a football player at the university where I taught roughly 20 years ago. And, and I, I, honestly, I don't know all of his study habits because I never saw him. Like he was never in class. And, and he comes to me four days before the end of the term. I, I, you know what? The semester just let out. I have college students in front of me that weren't in front of me even two weeks ago. Y'all need to listen to this, okay? From a professor. Four days before the end of the semester, I looked up his records. His average was a 37. I have no idea how it was that high. I, I don't. I don't. And, and he's like, he, he, so he comes up to me, and it's hat in hand first, right? It's like, it's like Dr. Rainey, I got a real problem. Yeah, I'd say you do. And I, I, I need some help. Can you give me some extra credit or something? Well, the minimum to pass the course is a 70, 40, 50. I mean, I, I, I teach theology, not math, but that's a lot of room. I don't know if I can give you that much extra credit. No. Shouldn't we have had this discussion 12 weeks ago? Oh, you weren't here. And then he goes from hat in hand to launching into, my family doesn't have the money, and I'm here on an athletic scholarship, and if you don't help me, y'all see what happened there? I don't know, man. Maybe you need to buy groceries for a little while to get used to, you know, consequences. I know it's really quiet right now. You guys are looking at me like, you're just such a mean guy. But I'm going to tell you what, all the employers in the room are thinking, no, he just protected us from a lazy, unproductive worker. I'm not trying to be mean to you. But I'm not going to give you anything you haven't earned. I'm going to lose my scholarship. Well, I guess you should have probably thought about that 12 weeks ago. That's called blame shifting. Our society is phenomenal at it. Nobody wants to be responsible for anything. I had a staff member come up to me just this morning. Something didn't happen that was supposed to happen this week. And I mean, just that, that person, I mean, they were, they were right on it immediately. You know what? First words out of their mouth. Pastor, I've let you down. I'm sorry. This is on me. This is what I'm going to do to fix it. <laughs> Hallelujah. Give me 10 more people like that. I'll keep them forever. Right? We just, we, we need people in this society who will just say, you know what? That's mine. I'm going to own that. I'm going to get that done. 
But how many times have we done that to God? This isn't fair. Read his words and the clear, unmovable commands that we have violated and we go, all right, I guess it's my fault. You're saying it, but you're not owning it. And you are just like Assyria. Who around the globe has not been affected by your wickedness? This is on you. This is on you. And all the while, you know, this is the irony of the thing. The complete ownership of our sin and the willingness to, you know, if we need to pay a temporary price for our sin if necessary, throwing ourselves in complete honesty and transparency before the throne of this God who is slow to anger and great in power is the only door to refuge. It's the only door. One preacher put it this way a long time ago. If you try to cover your sin, God will uncover it. But if you will uncover your sin, God will cover them with his grace. And Nahum tells us he is consistent in that action, and he has no favorites. He punished Israel. Okay? This is the nation in the ancient world upon whom he said, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. To the rest of the world, he said, don't touch these people. They're mine. Leave them alone unless you want to die. And he punished them. You think he won't punish you? Me? Why are we exempt? When his chosen people in the ancient world were not, who around the globe has not been affected by your wickedness? But I'm slow to anger. I'm slow to anger. See, years later, he'll punish Assyria because of their wicked, unspeakable actions to the sons and daughters of Abraham, sovereign over history. How's that for sovereignty? I'm going to use the Assyrians to punish my people, and then because I'm going to stay true to my promise to Abraham, I'm going to punish the Assyrians for doing what they did to my people. That's a sovereign, consistent, morally straight, righteous God. And 2,600 years later, you and I sit here in a broken world full of peril. Like the threat of harm is everywhere, isn't it? But it's ruled by a God who has not changed. And so the question, really the only important question is this. It's not... Am I going to walk unknowingly into another 9-11 kind of event? Or, or if I'm going to, listen, this is how, it, it, some of y'all ask, like, how could you go to other countries? And how could you, with all the danger in the world, you never know where the next attack's going to be. And you may, well, we're wise, we're careful, but really that's not even the primary question. You're in danger right here. You just don't know it. I live right next door to a guy in Maryland for 11 years. He was retired as a Defense Department contractor. His specialty was chemical and biological. And I asked him one day, well, how afraid should I be? Just kind of like that, just sort of Gomer Pyle, kind of, hey, how afraid should I be? He said, how afraid would you like to be? <laughs> you know what, let's just stop talking. Yeah. The world is a dangerous place. You're like, well, were you nuts? Why are you smiling about that? Because it's always been a dangerous place. There has never been a time when this entire world has been at peace since that great thud in Eden, and it will always be this way until the Prince of Peace returns. And we can bring glimpses of that kingdom of peace, and we do every, at every point of the way that we can. But here's the question in the middle of all of this. Is my life reflective 
of the life of a repentant person, somebody that hasn't just confessed my wrong, but they've owned it. I've owned it. That's the kind of person to whom God says, I will give you refuge because God always stands with the vulnerable, always, every single time. And you and I are no more vulnerable than when we own our sin in the presence of an infinitely holy God. But when we do, he has promised not only to fight for us, but to defend us. And we know this because a few hundred years after this prophecy is written, he will actually enter into history and pay the punishment on our behalf. Paul told the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the question. Right now as you sit in that seat, is he fighting for you or is he fighting against you? Turn from peril. Find refuge in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for even sometimes dire warnings and we recognize as we move through this series of books over and over again the common theme is that these warnings are loud in volume because they come from the heart of a God who loves his creation and that you've proven that love in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and so I pray today that everyone within the sound of my voice would find their refuge in you they would lay bare their sin they would own the things that they have done and that they would make the central question of their life every single morning as, as Martin Luther once said the entire life of a Christian is one of repentance am I am I repenting today just simply meaning am I walking not not am I miserable repentance is a joy-filled life Lord forgive us in the church including people in my line of work who've made repentance about cold dead stone walls no pleasure Father, repentance is when we not just turn from that which is bad, but we walk into your glorious presence. May many men and women do that as a result of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.